Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. You can always count on rain and good coffee in the Pacific Northwest. And sports fans in that part of the country could also count on Bud Withers. They turned to him as a trusted source of news and analysis for 45 years. Bud began his sports writing career in Eugene, Oregon in 1970 and retired from the Seattle Times in 2015. Well, sort of retired. He's still busy writing books, including his latest, Mad Hoops, about the Oregon basketball team known as the Kamikaze Kids. We'll talk about their hard-charging coach, Dick Harder, and much more. Hey, Bud, thanks a lot for walking into the Press Box Access Bar. We are so happy to have you with us. I'm pleased to be with you, Todd. I'm really looking forward to catching up. Yeah, it's been way too long. In 45 years, you wrote a lot of columns, a lot of stories. You asked a lot of questions. I have one question for you, bud. Is your rental car still running? Uh, you haven't forgotten, have you? <laughs> no, I, uh, I do not forget these things. No, no, I, I don't. I'll never forget that either. I, it was... Uh, it was probably the, the most uh, trying 24 hours I spent in, in the business in 45 years. Well, it's because years. it involved me. That's why. That's why. <laughs> no, you were actually a, sort of a semi-savior for me. But uh, Well, it's like, what, 2003, and you come in from the West Coast uh, to Columbus, Ohio, to cover, uh, I think, Washington and Ohio State football game, and— uh, and you're in your rental car, and you're heading to uh, the the press availability, and uh, you you need some directions, right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it was bizarre. I'd had computer problems to start with on my first uh, brush with Columbus, uh, and then there was going to be a uh, a press conference. I believe it was a Tuesday night. I'd flown in on a Monday, uh, got there Monday night. Going to be a press availability Tuesday evening after after Buckeye practice, and so I. I drive over there, and uh, and I before I had any real anything other than verbal directions, I think it was, and so I I know I'm in the vicinity of the Ohio State facility, the where the where the events taken place, but I, I can't quite can't quite find it, and so I I get out of my uh, rental car, and I'm in kind of a hurry, and we're we're you know getting kind of uncomfortably close to the start of this thing, like 15 minutes away. 15 deadline, minutes. deadline, yeah, deadline, yeah, it's always constant, deadline. Always a deadline, you know. <laughs> it's you know last calls coming up. I mean, my God, you know. <laughs> anyway, so I, I get out of this rental car, and uh, and God, I I, I want to say there's a red rental car that it, it's it's just emblazoned on my mind. It, Anyway, get out of it, and, uh, and and I leave the engine running, and I make the fatal mistake Uh-oh. of shutting the door, which is a uh, mm. a carjacking, anti-carjacking uh, function, apparently. And so go into this florist shop, and 
I get my directions, which turned out to be worthless because as I as I get out and, and try to enter my car again, it's locked with the engine oh. running. And so uh, I'm in a now I'm in a panic. You know what? What do I do? Do I? Uh, you know I have to decide. Uh, am I going to am I going to stay here and, and rectify this whole thing, which is going to total, totally take me out of the the press conference? You're in a panic, and I'm laughing at you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you can do that 18 years later. I'll, I'll give you that. So anyway, I decided, got it. You know, I'm, I'm back here. I'm going to be writing about Ohio State all week. I, I got to go to this thing. And so I uh, make the decision to just abandon the rental car and, and hook a ride to the uh, to the press conference with, I believe, the owner of this florist shop. And uh, hey, that's how we that's how we roll in the Midwest. We're nice. We're nice <laughs> people. Yeah, well, he was he was above and beyond the call, believe me. And I got to give him credit for even knowing what, where uh, where to take me. And so I, I made the thing in plenty of time. And meanwhile, my rental car, you know, chugged away on idle uh, in the middle of this florist shop parking lot. And uh, and so sixty minutes, ninety minutes later, or whatever, I needed a needed a ride back to the thing. And and uh, fortunately, I knew a guy named Todd Jones who was. <laughs> more than more than willing to oblige and and uh, get back there and the the dang thing is still running and there's five eighths of a tank of uh, of gas as I recall in the on the on the gauge and so man what a tank yeah it was it was unbelievable actually I didn't I didn't discern that until having called a locksmith uh, who, who came out and in a in a reasonable amount of time half an hour or whatever and then your copy desk is calling where where's your column bud come on <laughs> yeah, yeah How long does it take you to write something bud yeah what a what a slug you know so <laughs> anyway life on the road as a sports writer is summed up by this story bud withers with his rental car running and the keys are inside and he's not <laughs> Pretty brutal. Well, those are the type of things that happen to you when you spend 45 years in the business. And, um, you know, you you covered so many things, so many great events, saw lots of athletes and coaches, won awards, you've written five books, you've done a little bit of everything, bud. The heart of your career really is basketball, especially college basketball, and that's how I got to know you. But let's talk a little baseball. I wanted to ask you about baseball because you also covered the Mariners back in the 90s when they had a guy named Ken Griffey Jr. And Jr. to me is the guy who kind of put Seattle on the map for the rest of the nation. I mean, I know the Sonics won an NBA title in the 70s, but that's back when the NBA was on tape delay. You know, Jr. was part of the ESPN generation, and he just seemed to bring a lot to the city of Seattle as a player. Uh, What was it like to be on the front lines with Ken Griffey Jr. in the 1990s in Seattle? Well, he was, when I think about it, he was really kind of what baseball lacks right now. And he, he was a guy who not only had this prodigious talent, but I think he appealed to young people. And you know, we all know how baseball needs younger people getting into the game and caring about it and whatnot. And he was the guy who wore his hat backwards in batting practice. And, and, and if he yeah, could have done fun? it. Yeah, if he could have done it during the game, I'm sure he would have. And uh, you know, he <laughs> yeah. just enjoyed being out there playing. You know, he he was not a was not a guy who uh, relished the uh, the media spotlight uh, by yeah. any means. Uh, he wasn't a moth to the media flame. You know, he didn't he didn't need us. He just no. wanted to play baseball and have fun and, and exactly and entertain I, the fans. Yeah, I was a, I was a backup uh, Mariner writer for the Post Intelligencer at that time and. 
And, uh, you know, I remember more than one night, it, these were these were still years when the Mariners were uh, were struggling, losing, you know, that they, they had they had never been to the playoffs at that point. And um, I, I remember more than one night, you know, Griffey kind of uh, stalking out of the clubhouse, you know, stalking might be too strong a word. I mean, just just sort of purposefully striding out and you, you knew those were nights when 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 he didn't want to be talked to after a game or whatever not not that not that he had necessarily done anything uh, in in that game to uh, to warrant a, a necessary uh, couple of minutes with him but right uh, he just didn't you know, need to entertain us yeah, he, every he wasn't yeah. he wasn't going to be one of the spokesmen in other words uh, for for losing problems or or sometimes even even when they were winning but uh you know what i what i remember so much about him though was uh he would he would uh take on these uh, make a wish kids uh these assignments and and uh, you'd get out there at 3 or 3:30 to uh uh to to do the baseball writer thing before a game you know, a 7 o'clock game and and he would he would be spending so much time with these kids and he would really get into it and, and, uh, and really make it a special occasion for, for these kids. And it wasn't a uh, drive by for him. It wasn't absolutely. a surface thing. Yeah. Absolutely. He would, he would really take it on. Uh, he, he embraced it. And, uh, why do you uh, think that is? Why do you think he did that? Yeah, it, It's tough to say. I, I the, the only thing that comes to mind is uh, they were kids and, and he was a kid really. I mean, at, mm, at this point yeah. he was, you know, he was still, he, he, he made the, he got up to the majors in 89, which, uh, God, what was he? Was he 19, 20? I can't remember. Um, yeah, I think he was like 19 years old. It was amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and I don't know that he was doing, doing this stuff that much early in his career, but he certainly was by, you know, 93, 94, whatever. And at that point, he's still only 24, 25 years old. And, and, uh, and he, he didn't relish the, uh, the spotlight. It was just something that uh, somehow deep down he, he, uh, he felt strongly about doing. And it was, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't like his teammate, Alex Rodriguez in the Mariners. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A-Rod, uh, A-Rod came up in, in, uh, uh, drafted in 93 and, and ended up with the Mariners in 95. And, uh, and A-Rod, A-Rod was, was about image and, and whatnot. And, and he and Griffey, uh, clashed at least quietly. Uh, mm. I think partly because of that, because personalities was, was really all about me, and, and Griffey was was uh, was not one to uh, to seek out the uh, media spotlight. Yeah, I got to know Junior a little bit when he came to the Cincinnati Reds, his hometown team. I had worked in Cincinnati, and even as somebody who was working in Columbus, I would go down and do some occasional red stories and columns. And, and um, you know, Junior, he just didn't really want to play the media game a lot, but he wasn't a bad guy. You know, he he had his days, but he, I just always felt like he was true to himself. He just wanted to play baseball, you know, tried to win, tried to entertain the fans. And so th- in my mind, there's nothing fake about that. He wasn't trying to play a character for anybody. And I always re- kind of respected that. He was really all about winning. That, that, uh, I mean, he wanted to have fun, obviously, but he, he was about winning. Well, you certainly attained veteran status in basketball. You covered years and years of uh, especially college basketball, and you even covered the dream team over 
in the Barcelona Olympics. And But college basketball is really how I got to know you and so many other uh, writers around the nation did. You were president of the United States Basketball Writers Association in 1992-93. And then that organization elected you to its Hall of Fame in 2010. Uh, I think you cover like 20 Final Fours. Like 73 weekends at the NCAA tournament. Not a bad gig, bud. Yeah, it was. those are great times. You saw some amazing things at the uh, NCAA tournament. I think Tyus Edney going coast to coast, Bo Kimball, Danny Manning. Tell me a little bit about what your favorite moments are from covering the NCAA tournament. Well, you just hit a few of them. You know, you, when, you, when you say 20 Final Fours, you, you know, you naturally think, okay, you know, what championship games did I see? And, and, as you may remember, there was a there was a, a big run like in the eighties of, of of like almost every year it was it was a, a one or two pointer or a buzzer beater. Oh yeah, the reputation of the tournament just went to yeah, the roof. It really did um, during that period, and and there were certainly great games in the in the final four, you know, including uh, uh, Duke beating UNLV's unbeaten team in 91 in the semis. Oh, hey, I was there. I was there for that one. We, we were both courtside, yeah. Exactly. But, but you know what? I, I, thinking about it, I, I, uh, I kind of concluded that the, what, that the moments that you really remember, or at least I do, in, in the tournament were those early round uh, the Tyus Edney uh, coast to coast, four point eight seconds left in in ninety five when <clears throat> when uh, UCLA overcame Missouri and, and by one point and uh, moments like that and, and you you start to think boy how history could have been different I mean all oh, right uh, one play yeah one play I mean if if Edney doesn't doesn't make that drive um, it 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 would now be. 1975 since UCLA yeah. won a national title, which is, what are we talking? That's uh, that's 45 years ago, you know. Yeah, Jim Harry would have never got that title under his belt yeah. as the UCLA coach. He would still would have been the lizard of Westwood. <laughs> but along those along those same lines, um, back in back in the, one of the first NCAA uh, basketball games I covered back in '83 uh, in Corvallis. Uh, NC State is playing Pepperdine in a in a first round game. This is Jim Valvano. Jim Valvano yeah. coaching NC State, right? Absolutely. Um, and Pepperdine's got them dead to rights. Uh, I believe the game went double overtime, but uh, at the end of regulation, it was either at the end of regulation or the end of the first overtime. Pepperdine's got them, as I recall, by like six points with like fifty or fifty five seconds left. And and I still recall looking down to my left at the Pepperdine bench and guys celebrating. I mean, they're, they're going to knock out NC state in the first round and nobody's ever going to, I mean, how is Jim Valvano going to be remembered? Uh, right. You know, right. years later and, and, you know, the V foundation, would that have ever, yeah, uh, because they you know, even happened. Cause NC state survived that game and then went on to win that miraculous national championship, which, you know, exactly. that's why we have the V foundation. Exactly, yeah, and and NC State had a whole string of near misses, if you remember. I mean, they, you know, so many times they could have been knocked out of that tournament. But the very first uh, game, they they should have been knocked out. I had Pepperdine had a had a kid who uh, uh, Dane Subtle, who with like forty seconds left, had two free throws, and he was like an eighty four percent free throw shooter, missed them both. I mean, it, probably if he makes one, uh, one out of two, and he's a great free throw shooter. NC State's going home. 
He probably yeah. never missed two at the line in a row in his career. You know, no, I, mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that. so. Yeah. <laughs> and a game but like those, that, was, that wasn't even a big arena, right? That was like kind of a smaller place, wasn't it? About 10,000. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. Another one that, that, I, that I could mention, um, in 86, covering a regional in Long Beach, of all places, Montana State was in there you know, from the big sky, and they're, they're a 16 seed. And they're playing St. John's with Walter Berry, uh, you know, number one seed and whatnot. And yeah, Carnesecca's great teams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, coming off, let's see, that it would have been a year after St. John's had been to the Final Four, and, and so um, anyway, Montana, Montana State had the you know collection of <laughs> scruffy kids from basically from rural Montana, and in a second, you know, they gave they gave St. John's a pretty good run. I mean, it, was, it just didn't have enough talent. But in the in the second half, Montana State had a couple of kids. Last name was Furch, F E R C H, and 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 the the older kid was name was Crawl Furch, not Carl, but Crawl K R A L Furch, and uh, you know the unlikely name. And so, uh, sometime in the second half, he goes down the lane, and. He's like 6'4", and dunks on Shelton Jones, who's like a 6'8 kid. Uh, you know, just a just a nasty <laughs> posterizing dunk. And it was such a great basketball moment, you know, the idea that, you know, the, the, you know, if you came from the inner city, you didn't necessarily have any edge on this guy from rural Montana, you know, some guy named like, Crawl who had yeah, hops. some guy, some guy <laughs> named Crawl who could who could jump and who could who could dunk. Well, that's what the tournament was great about, right? It was like sometimes you would have no name schools or no name players, and that was their stage to to make a reputation for themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Well, just I mean, just getting in the tournament for a, for a school like that is. A, Huge deal, and then to uh, you know they, they gave St. John's a pretty good run. Probably lost by double digits eventually, but certainly didn't get blown out. But I, I'll never forget Crawl Furch. Crawl Furch. I never heard of Crawl Furch, and now we <laughs> now we know all about it. I wonder if Crawl even remembers that play. Uh, he probably has it framed in a in a museum somewhere wherever he's living. And Shelton Jones doesn't have it framed. I don't <laughs> no, know. he does not. No, no. Well, making those type of reputations, uh, you know, no names. Makes me think about a basketball program that you know as well as anyone, and we all kind of assume they're a power because they are now, but that's Gonzaga. And Gonzaga, who just lost in the NCAA championship under uh, Coach Mark Few, years ago, they were not Gonzaga. <laughs> they were not the team that we all know now. You know, they had John Stockton in the early 80s, and that's about all I knew of Gonzaga history. They didn't even win a game in the NCAA tournament until 1999. Yeah, exactly. And now they're just power. Tell us about, you You were with them all, every step of the way. What was it like at a Gonzaga game 30 years ago? Well, they, you know, they played in a really small arena, so so it wasn't, you know, they had fans. They they were a, they were a, basically a mid uh, West Coast Conference, you know, mid-level school. They'd, they'd finish, you know, a good year for them would be eight and six in the league. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they, they'd finish fourth, fifth, sixth in there pretty much every year. And the, the story is often told, but the coach was Dan Fitzgerald, who was a really, a, a real character. And his, his deal, it, it, it was almost like he didn't want to, 
he didn't want to get expectations set too high. So he, he, he just wanted to sort of keep his job, basically. Wait a minute. That's how I approach life. Low yeah. expectations, and I'll yeah. always exceed them just, that way. I'm, I'm never jo- disappointed. Keep your job, exactly. So anyway, he, he would actually, more than one person has told me this, he would, he would have an annual dinner for the coaches, uh, you know, usually figure what, it'd be, it'd be mid to late February. He would have an annual dinner when they clinched having a winning season. So, you know, as long, <laughs> yeah, as, long, parade. Let's have a parade. <laughs> as, as long as they were going to be 14 and 12, that was okay. You know, but then, so in 99, um, and it started here at, at Key Arena in Seattle, as, as people will remember, um, they go on this, they were, they were a pretty talented team. Those assistant coaches, one, one thing Fitz, Dan Fitzgerald could do was uh, he could hire. And, yeah, he could get other guys to do the work for him. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, and Dan Munson, Mark Few, Billy Greer, uh, uh, Leon Rice, you know, all those guys have gone on to, to head coaching jobs, some with more success than others, uh, obviously notably few. But they go on this hellacious run in 99, starting here at Key Arena. And again, in the vein of things that might have been, uh, they catch a huge break when, like, God, what was it, a day or within 48 hours, certainly maybe more like 24, there was this great revelation of the, in, I believe in the St. Paul Pioneer Press, that there were all these academic indiscretions at Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, and, right. And, and we all know what that ballooned into, you know, heavy NCAA penalties, et cetera, et cetera. Clem Haskins gets fired. But for the time being, they suspended, as I remember, like four guys and uh, including a couple of pretty key players. And so Gonzaga gets the great benefit of of meeting a, a really decimated Minnesota team here. And so they, indeed, they, they beat Minnesota to, to ignite this run. But You know, I never made that connection. I didn't know that that, that was one of the things that opened a door for them was Minnesota yeah. had, had a stripped-down version of its program go up against Gonzaga. I didn't realize that. Yeah, you know, and, and, and so you, you think, okay, what, what if that doesn't happen or, or what, if, what if the story gets delayed a week or whatever and, they, and Minnesota beats Gonzaga? Well, you know, probably at the very least, Dan Munson is not going to take the Minnesota job later that summer because they're not, they're not going to have gone on an Elite Eight run. Um, so maybe they did have good teams coming back the next two years. They went to the Sweet 16 and so forth. But, uh, you know, uh, he, at the, at the very least, he would have been at Gonzaga another couple of years. And, and who knows, maybe by then Mark Few leaves and, and takes right. another job, you know. So. Well, when I think of Gonzaga, and I said Gonzaga before, I still fall into that trap. Gonzaga, Gonzaga. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. going to correct No, that's all right. I need <laughs> to be corrected once in a while. Um, that's my fault. Gonzaga, I should know that by now. But Gonzaga, when I think of Gonzaga, Dan Monson is a guy who I think – you know, is the guy who really brought something to that program when he was the head coach. Uh, what do you think he brought to that program? He was a, he was a really hard-nosed guy. Um, ironically, I, I had covered his dad at Oregon, Don. Uh, you know, Don was a uh, – Don had a good little run at the University of Idaho back in the early 80s. Uh, he was a gruff, you know, hard-nosed guy, not a good recruiter, uh, but but a guy who uh, you know he he had some you know he had some NCAA tournament teams 
two in a row, I believe, at, at Idaho in like 81 and 82. And, and Dan uh, grew up uh, in, in his dad's footsteps, essentially. And Dan himself was a, a hard-nosed guy, a, a good X's and O's guy. Um, not necessarily, I, I wouldn't call him a player's coach by any means. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you compare him at all to Mark Few, I mean, Few is more of a, I wouldn't even call Few a player's coach, but he, I think he's much more attuned. He's got a real feel for for. Uh, for players and their needs and, and kind of knowing when to push buttons and knowing when to, to give them a pat on the back type thing. And, right. But when I think of Monson, I think of, I think of an edge, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He had a definite edge. Like a fearlessness yeah. type of thing. Exactly. And, and, and since Gonzaga was his first head coaching job, he was probably, you know, having grown up, uh, you know, close to his father and seeing how what worked for his father, he was probably going to err on the side of, I'm, okay, I'm going to be the hard guy. I've got assistant coaches who can, who can be the, uh, you know, be the guy to good soften cop. things for me. The good cop. Yeah. But I think sometimes that's what you need in the early stages of building what Gonzaga has become now. Uh, you need somebody to really just push the issue. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and he did. And, and he, uh, I mean, it, it, sadly for him, you know, it, 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 it's it's strange how it all works. I mean, he he goes to Minnesota, and, and who could blame him? He was he was making about a hundred grand at, at Gonzaga, uh, maybe a hundred and a quarter, and he goes to Minnesota for like seven hundred thousand. I mean, who who would have turned that down? I think you know? I would have left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, exactly. And so, sorry, Gonzaga. Uh, yeah, no, um, I'm apologizing all the time now for Gonzaga, 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 Gonzaga. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you know, it, it didn't. Eventually, you know, he got to the NCAA tournament at Minnesota, but I, it would be interesting to know what he thinks deep down, because obviously the the whole Gonzaga thing is is greatly uh, overshadowed what the, the, the sort of the founder of the thing, and, and you could certainly yeah. refer to Dan Munson as, as the founder. Well, yeah, sometimes that happens, right? I mean, the guy who builds the foundation of what becomes, you know, the prettiest building in town. Um, yeah. You know, years go by, and then you have to almost pause and like, oh, yeah, remember the guy who who set this up for success? And but I they think were, Monson. What's really remarkable about that story is they, they were in the late, yeah, late 90s, they, they had all these hellacious obstacles to overcome. They, they Because of Fitzgerald having run afoul of some NCAA rules with finances in the athletic department, you know, diverting finances to, to basketball and whatnot, he, he ran into some institutional control issues. So they're on probation the school is uh, is really struggling financially as as a whole. I mean, enrollment was down. There, there was talk about you know, shuttering the, the university. Really, not just the program, the actual school. Yeah, the, it was the place was just a just a mess in the in the late nineties, and then all of a sudden, they they uh, they go on this basketball run, and and and, and it's not an overstatement at all to. I don't think to say the to say the basketball saved that school and and and, and indeed caused it to really prosper as the as the next century uh, came on. You know, they get a new arena and, they, and all of a sudden enrollment is up and you know kids are 
kids are dying to go there. You know, eighteen-year-old kids. You know that that got connected to it by by the by the basketball reputation. Yeah. All of a sudden, the little engine that could is now the big engine that can. Yeah. You know? Exactly. And we expect success out of Gonzaga. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, reputations, we're talking about how things can change, uh, one person, one play. Um, I think about the reputation of Oregon athletics. And um, you started writing sports in 1970. And you were out there covering, I think, Oregon State back in the early 1970, mid-1970s. And Oregon, the Oregon Ducks, they had a coach, when I think about Monson being kind of a hard-nosed guy, Oregon brought in a guy named Dick Harder to be the, the basketball coach in 1971. And this is much different Oregon, right? Oregon athletics, we're not talking Phil Knight and Nike and tons of money and tons of facilities. What was it like at Oregon University in the 70s in terms of support? Well, Todd, they, they didn't have two nickels to rub together. I mean, they, they were, uh, you know, forget Phil Knight. and You know, he... He started what was the forerunner of Nike back in like 72 or so, but, but it wasn't, you know, it, for, for years and years, he was just trying to get Nike uh, afloat and, right. and, uh, and prosperous and whatnot. So he didn't really get involved in any significant way with Oregon athletics until like the mid nineties. So, so we're talking, you know, 20, 25 years before that. Yeah. Cause now you um, think university of Oregon, you think the university of Oregon and Nike, like they're just always have been together, but that wasn't yeah. the case. Oh, not at all. And and they were, you know, the Northwest schools, other than Washington, uh, you know, WSU, Oregon State, Oregon were were frequently the subject of well, you know, we've got to get them out of the pack eight. Uh, you know, those schools <laughs> can't pull their weight. You know, the, we need to relegate them. Yeah, exactly. There was there was all sorts of talk that they needed to expand to other markets and, and get those three schools out of the league. And Oregon was one of them. Um, but anyway, so Oregon in the early seventies does something really uncharacteristic. They had always been partly, well, mostly because of the financial bind had, had uh, always hired on the cheap. I mean, it, it, they actually hired a football coach in the early seventies from a, from a staff that they had just fired that had gone two and nine. The, the they hired him? The, yeah, <laughs> they, they hired the next, the next guy comes off that same staff. We, you know, stuff that would be unheard of nowadays. Not Once again, low bar of expectations, people. Oh, low oh bar. yeah. Yeah, just <laughs> so anyway, they, they, they do something really out of the box and they go, they go hire Dick Harder from the University of Pennsylvania uh, in 1971 and, and paid him uh, a, a really good wage at that time uh, and promised him a, a big recruiting budget and, and so forth. And, and he basically turned the town upside down and, and the state of Oregon. Uh, now, I know Dick Harder the way I know of him as a longtime NBA assistant. Correct. And you 
were covering college basketball. Again, you were covering Oregon State, the Civil War rival, but you also came across harder a lot in those 70s, and you ended up writing a great, great book called Mad Hoops that came out last year. And it's a fantastic read. I was thinking to myself, oh, I don't know, what do I what do I know about Oregon basketball in the 70s? Well, there was so many great stories about Dick Harder and how crazy that was. Tell us what it was like. What did he bring to that program, that area? I think you called him the most controversial. It's the most controversial era in the history of Pac-12 basketball. Why do you say that about Dick Harder? Well, he... Uh he brought with him uh, a really uh, a really confrontational, I guess I would say, style in terms of on the floor. Uh, they were very physical, very grabby. You know, some, some people would say borderline dirty. And, and in some cases, you could throw the word borderline out of there. Um, <laughs> he, he, he got entrenched in this style at Oregon and... Uh, other schools became very critical of him, including UCLA with John Wooden. You know, Wooden was basically coached a finesse style, and that was largely— He had the best players. (laughs) He had the best players. Yeah, you didn't need to grab and hold and whatnot. Right, right. So this is is in the middle of their great run when they dominated college basketball. UCLA and the St. John Wooden, and Dick Carter shows up and says, we're taking them on. Yeah, he, you know? his his challenge uh, overtly and in other ways was ultimately to dethrone UCLA, and of course he never did that. But he did uh, he did really get after him. He held the ball a couple of years back before the shot clock. I mean, he would do everything, you know, not only with UCLA but with with other people just to to be controversial, just to be a burr in their saddle, so to speak. He was a really interesting guy from the standpoint of. You know, he had a, he'd been in the Marine Corps, and, and there was a definite honorable side to the guy. Uh, you know, he wanted good citizens in his program, and largely, in, at least until the last couple of years of the seven-year tenure, he, he had those. You know, he wanted guys wearing coats and ties on the road, that sort of thing. But he, he also had this dark side that would occasionally arise you know, and a couple of things that, would, that will always be memorable to me. In 74, the end of the season, they're playing Oregon State on the road at Gill Coliseum. And uh, back in the day, Oregon and Oregon State had a, uh, a trophy given to whoever won the season series. Yeah, and that's an intense, tense rivalry, right? Oh, yeah. Oregon, Oregon talk- State is vicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking two schools that are unlike Washington and Washington State, where one school has tons of resources and urban setting in Washington – you know, you, you've got two schools in, in Oregon that are about the same enrollment. They're 45 miles apart. They're, they're pretty much on the, on the same uh, level, potentially. And so, anyway, uh, they would play a non-league game at that time. So, you know, you would have three games, and so you'd have an odd number of games, and somebody would, would always win that season series rather than splitting it. So, anyway, so end of, end of the season, 74 They've they've split the first two games and now they're going to play the la- the league the last league game at Gill Coliseum and so so the trophy's on the line <laughs> the trophy is on the line the Chancellor's Trophy it was called and it had a uh, it had a gold ball on it you know that of course uh, it did. At, I, love at the top. I love the trophies from the seventies oh wow. god yeah and so <laughs> anyway so so Oregon State gets out to a big lead and they're they're clearly going to win the game and, and whatnot and so the Oregon State athletic director brings the trophy out to uh, and gives it to a, 
male cheerleader uh, on, on the baseline and says, hey, when the, uh, when, when the game's over, would you give this to Coach Miller? You know, Ralph Miller, the future Hall of Fame coach. And uh, so the, the cheerleader, and I, and I really can't fault his logic. You know, he thinks, well, what sense does it make to just walk up to Coach Miller and give him this trophy? It's not going to be like a formal presentation or anything with, you know, on the, on the PA or anything. There's people are going to be filing out of Gill and, uh, you know, they're going to miss it. And the cheerleader thinks, you know, people really need to celebrate the moment. They need to exult in the moment here. So, Hell yeah, they got the trophy, man. Yeah. That's right. So, so dead ball situation. I think it was like 14 seconds left. The cheerleader uh, decides he's going to jog around the perimeter of the floor one time, and he's got the trophy and he's going to, you know, brandishing it above his head and and you know waving it for the fans and whatnot. And uh, so he does that, and, and of course the fans are going crazy. We're going to win the chancellor's trophy, et cetera, et cetera. And so. He gets the, the, the last portion of his circuit is going to take him in front of the Oregon bench. And uh, lo and behold, Dick Harder s- sticks out his foot and trips the cheerleader on purpose. <laughs> I mean, there was, there was never any, any doubt that it was on purpose. And he, had, he copped to that immediately. I mean, it was, it, it was not <laughs> like, like a pro a, wrestling move. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, there was never any uh, question about it. And he eventually apologized and sent a short letter of apology to the cheerleader. And whatnot. So what, what happened, what happened in the moment? Like, so he trips the cheerleader. How did the crowd react? The cheerleader goes ass over tea kettle. He's totally, uh, you know, surprised by the thing. The, the trophy flies up in the air and crashes to the, uh, to, oh, to the floor. In fact, not the a, trophy. A, a guy, a guy that I interviewed for the book on, on, you know, the Oregon state team who was at the other end, not that far away, but he thought it maybe a light, you know, some light fixture had fallen from the from the ceiling or something. It was just this percussive crash. I was there that night, and it, and it was it was momentarily ugly. Where the kind of thing where if let's say if a fan or a couple fans had rushed out of the stands and and tried to start a fight or whatever, I mean, it, it could have been a, a real a riot. You know, it could have been a riot, yeah. But unfortunately, you know, Ralph Miller took the PA and said. Yeah, I saw it. We all saw it, you know, but, you know, we, we need to cool it, basically. And just, just <laughs> Good for Ralph. He saved the day. He did. I mean, but, but Harder did stuff like that. He was just a, uh, he had a very confrontational side. Well, that's one of the great anecdotes in the book, and they're just chock full of them. I, I really recommend people to read it. It's, it's a fantastic book if you love college basketball. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about with Harder is, so you covered Oregon State, but you actually, you know, you saw Oregon practice sometimes. And there's a legend about Harder used bricks. Yes. During practice, actual building bricks. Oh, what yeah. What the hell did he do with them? From what I could gather, he, he, had, a, he had a friend who coached junior college in, uh, in the Bay Area. I believe his name was Bud Presley. Coached at, like, College of San Mateo or something. And Harder had gotten to know this guy. And about midway through his tenure, which would make this about 1975 or so, um, because of having talked to this Presley, he... He started this practice of, 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 he sent a manager out to a sand and gravel uh, outfit in, close to Eugene and uh, bought a bunch of bricks. And what they would do, what they would do in practice, the, the old uh, drill defensive slides where, where guys have their, 
their arms out and they're they're going side to side to, back you know, and forth, sim- right? Yeah, back and forth to simulate uh, offensive or you know defensive reaction to uh, to offense. He would have guys hold bricks in their outstretched hands uh, at various <laughs> angles, you know, straight out or you know, right one high, left one low, that type of thing. And they would do this for 30 or 40 minutes at a stretch. I mean, <laughs> I've had players tell me that slides by themselves are, are really difficult to do for, for like 20 minutes, you know, with your arms out. Uh, but imagine doing that with with uh, bricks in your hands. I mean, those, <laughs> those things have got to weigh three or four pounds, I would imagine. I can't even imagine what they thought the players were holding up bricks going side to side. And this is practice. <laughs> yeah. I've had guys say it was things like that 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 really sort of caused a downturn in recruiting. Uh, they, they had really recruited on a pretty big time level uh, up, up until about the mid-70s. And, and that coincided with the time that you're doing some pretty crazy things like like this brick stunt. And, uh, they certainly weren't playing finesse basketball. I mean, I looked it up. In 1975 and 76, Harder's Oregon team committed 832 fouls <laughs> in 30 games. That's an average of almost 28 fouls a game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the thing was, Todd, it wasn't just Oregon committing 28 and the other team committing 11. You know, they they would they were very good at sort of drawing the other team into their style of game. Well, there was one game where Oregon committed 32 <clears throat> and Rice committed 41. 73 yes. fouls yeah. in <laughs> one game. <laughs> Thank the Lord you weren't there that day, Todd. I mean, uh, it, it, uh, yeah, they, they, they would – they played any number of just – total uh, you know you wouldn't want to be there to to watch it it was it was terrible you know just a whistle every every 20 seconds of no rhythm or whatever the seven seasons that harder was there in 71 to 78 they didn't quite fulfill you know the type of uh, success that they had wanted to have they didn't dethrone UCLA but they certainly made a, an impact on on uh, college basketball at Oregon and i i think MacArthur Court that place was just rocking, right? They used to call it the pit. Oh, yeah. What was it like inside the old pit when those teams were, were mauling people? It, it was a great college basketball venue. I mean, think think the Palestra uh, in Philadelphia. In uh, yeah, just, uh, in fact, the, the pit was compared, I, I was never in the Boston Garden, the old Boston Garden, but but it was very often compared to the garden where, where you had these these uh, balconies that went like straight up from from the sides of the court rather than you know a gradual slope as you you see in most arenas and uh, the, the 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 scoreboard would would actually you could see it jiggling on its chains at, at mid court when people would be stomping and clapping and it was probably the only place I've ever seen where it was pretty much standard for people to be there a half an hour before the game. I mean, you know, normally normally you see a crowd, you know, will get into its seat, you know, five to ten minutes before before a game, if that sometimes. And, but fans wanted to be there to see them run out onto the floor. and, and, uh, and It was like a rollicking affair. It oh, it was. Like. It was a yeah. real happening in Eugene. Well, I again, I recommend uh, Bud's book. It's, it's a fabulous read. Dick Harder, Dick was, he was hired 24 days after Indiana, hired some basketball coach named Bob Knight. And so it really was a different era in terms of coaching styles. And, you know, it's when you look back on that time, 
there are things that coaches did that they could never get away with today. If Dick Harder had players today using bricks, you know, think about Twitter blowing up now. But another thing you don't do now, as you mentioned it, you don't open practice to the media and you don't give the type of access that coaches gave to writers. And I mean, you covered Ralph Miller and you, you wrote a book with Ralph, the Hall of Famer, 19 years at Oregon State. Um, I mean, he was pretty available, right, on a day-to-day oh basis. Goodness. Yeah. So tell me about how was it to cover a coach like Ralph Miller back in the 1970s? Oh, he was he was a dream, Todd. Uh, it's funny because he had this uh, persona of being this sort of this crusty old Midwesterner, which he was certainly. Uh, but underneath that, there was a real warmth and sort of this conviviality, I guess you'd say. Um, I can't tell you how many times I, I remember Oregon State would practice at two o'clock at Gill Coliseum, and I can't tell you how many times I'd go in there, and, and oftentimes it wouldn't be even by appointment, I'd, I'd go in there sometime after one o'clock and talk to him about a story I was working on or whatever. And he'd, he'd go up until two o'clock and maybe even a, a few minutes farther. It was sort of like, he didn't really want to go to practice. He just wanted to stay there and shoot the breeze, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but he'd, he'd saunter out to practice at, at two or two Oh five. And, and he would sit at, at midcourt, oftentimes in a folding chair. And, you know, nowadays you think of the coach wearing the, the warm-up outfit or whatever that, that, you know, might be, you know, the team kind of warm-up outfit or whatever. And he, I, don't, I don't think he ever did that. He, he just wore straight clothes and he'd sit, he'd sit in a folding chair smoking a, a more cigarette. He, they used to, you know, a, a, these, on brown, the court? these brown cigarettes and more he's cigarettes. Smoking a, he's smoking on the court during practice. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and occasionally, you know, he'd be, he'd, he'd bark things out, but occasionally, he, uh, you know, the assistants would largely run things, but there was no question about who was, who was boss and, and he would, he would definitely weigh in. But I mean, the guy was just, uh, he was from another era. He always said, you know, basketball hasn't changed it, you know, since, you know, since the 1930s or something. And and he was one of the few guys who was around then. So nobody could really t- take issue with it. He had played at Kansas under Fog Allen. He would refer to, uh, we were, you know, Fog was running the fast break, you know, back in whatever, you know, 1937 or whatever. Uh, he was he was just one of a kind and a great guy to cover. I mean, just uh, you know, you had great access and well, he'd have you up to the suite after the game, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, would, he would, yeah, he would very uh, very frequently have have media people up, and he, he just kind of wanted to be around. Uh, uh, he, he had a real ego. There's no question about that. But uh, was was a uh, just a hoot to cover. Well, that image of him sitting in midcourt smoking uh, is one that <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to forget that anytime soon. That's a great image of uh, of an era. You know, just also when I think about old school coaches like that, I just also think about the business and guys like yourself. You started in 1970, Eugene Register Guard. You eventually went on to the Seattle Post Intelligencer, the Seattle Times, where you retired in 2015. Think of how much things have changed for writers over the years, I mean, you were using, did you start off with like a manual typewriter? Is oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, I still have it, as a matter of fact. You know, uh, 
port, a portable typewriter. Right. And so you go from typewriters to telecopiers to telerams to laptops to iPhones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've seen all those changes as a reporter. I think the one thing that didn't change, though, was there was always a camaraderie among writers, but there was also competitiveness, too, right? Absolutely. I mean, there were more papers. You wanted to get the the story. I think you, I mean, I think one time you told me you sent your neighbor into your home to get a phone number or something. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. story was so important. What was this? Uh, it was in the late 90s. I'm not sure of the year. But anyway, uh, covering Washington football, and they were headed to the Sun Bowl uh, right up until, uh, I believe, Arizona upset in, in a pretty big upset the day after Thanksgiving, uh, beat Arizona State, uh, which totally reworked the, the bowl pecking order. And so now, all of a sudden, Washington looked to be, uh, instead of the sun, looked like they were going to go to the Aloha Bowl. Well, naturally, I hadn't uh, accounted for that. We had taken off for Thanksgiving weekend in, in Oregon with my wife's parents. And so I'm down there, and, and I, I've got to come up with some kind of a story uh, talking about this, and and I really need to get a hold of the uh, Aloha Bowl people to see if, if indeed they're they're locking in Washington. And so I and again, I called, no internet yet, no internet. <laughs> yeah, no internet, and and I didn't, you know, I didn't take my uh, my personal phone book or anything like that, which was really stupid because you you really gotta think ahead for things like that. And so I called my neighbor and had him. Um, I, I think we had given him a key, and I and I guided him into the den where my my stuff was and got him <laughs> got him to look through a, my personal phone book for the for the number for the uh, the allowable people unfortunately track you know was able to track them down late in the afternoon over there and sure sure enough Washington was uh, was headed to the allowable so now did your neighbor write a sidebar for you no he didn't he, he failed <laughs> me in that regard uh, it was much appreciated but you had some crazy times. I mean, you even called a prison one time for a story. Yeah, that was. I'll, I'll never forget that one. Washington covering Washington football back in the in the late nineties, and they had a couple of brothers. The the uh, the the better player of which was Hakeem Akbar. He was a he was a safety, you know, pro prospect, but not a early round guy type guy, and so. Anyway, from Southern California, they were, and the the story was that their their father was in prison in California for having committed a bank robbery, I believe, down in Riverside back in about 1995 or so. And so, I'm on a football trip to Stanford one year, or planning this football trip, and I think, God, you know, be a great story to go down to San Luis Obispo, south of Stanford, on near the coast, and and see if I could interview the uh, uh, these two brothers' father in, in prison. He, you know, he was he was due to get out, I believe, in like oh two. So anyway, I go ahead and do that, and uh, you know, I had a good session with the uh, the father in in the prison and whatnot. And so, uh, so this was like you know October, early November, or whatever. So season plays out, end of the season. Uh, Hakeem Akbar, the, the safety, is is deciding whether he's a junior and he's deciding whether to to uh, enter the NFL draft or or stick around at Washington for another year. And so the announcement is supposed to come on Monday. And so you know I don't really have any insight into what he might be thinking or whatever. And as I remember, didn't really have any way to get hold of him. I'm not even sure I had his number. 
And I think, God, you know, I wonder if, if there's some way I could get a hold of the father in, in prison and, and see if he knows something. So, so uh, God, I remember it's Sunday night. I, uh, I dialed up the prison in San Luis Obispo and, and uh, I, you know, I explained to the, whoever I was talking to, I explained to him, you know, that I'd been down there and, and, and interviewed Mr. Akbar uh, a couple months before that. And, and was, is there any way he could, he could get to the phone? And, and it was a total shot in the dark. Well, let's take a shot, right? Yeah, take a shot. And lo and behold, they go get him. And he, they put him on the phone and, and, and I said, you, you know, do you have any insight into what, what Hakeem is doing? And he said, well, I just talked to him uh, uh, earlier today, or maybe it was the day before. And he said, he said, and he told me, he told me he's coming out. So I wrote that story and, and uh, fortunately, it, it was it was accurate. But it, I mean, sometimes you just you grovel and you you, you grasp and you you know you, you exhaust every last possibility to to get that story. You call prisons, you send your neighbors, and you do whatever yeah. it takes. I mean, you even wrote a story on the hood of a car when Dennis Erickson won the national championship at Miami, and you knew him back in the day. So you just do what it takes, right? When you're a yeah, wise no. old veteran sports scribe. You know where you need to be, how to get there, and what you got to do to get it done. Yeah, I, I remember uh, I had covered Erickson at those Washington State teams that, that sort of launched him to uh, the University of Miami job, which he took in, I believe, you know, it was 89. And uh, so it was a couple, three years later, he won the national his first national title at Miami. And I believe they had been in... Uh, Texas at the Cotton Bowl. I could or, uh, take it back. I think they were at the Sugar Bowl and, and had made, beaten maybe Alabama there. I can't remember. But anyway, by now they had flown back into uh, into Miami, and I was I had, was in Miami covering the Orange Bowl, totally unrelated, and uh, and thought, God, it, you know, be a good story to uh, to get you know reaction after they had just been voted the national title. So I went to. Went out to Coral Gables to, uh, to the Miami facility and sure enough was able to wrap that up. I was flying out later that evening or whatever, so I'm, not, I'm out of my hotel and I don't really have a place to work. And, You're and homeless, bud. Homeless. Yeah, I was I was temporarily homeless. And, and so, uh, yeah, sure enough, I probably had, I don't know, 45 minutes or so to, to write a story and I did it on the set up the laptop on the back of a rental car and uh, I think I probably sent it from the airport, so... No, were the keys were the keys locked in that rental car? Was it running? <laughs> that, that was that was years later. I suffered that embarrassment. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you do, you do uh, find yourself in some odd situations. Yeah, but those are the things that made the career rich and made the lifestyle very very interesting. And and uh, you had quite the career, bud. Six times named Washington and Oregon Sports Writer of the Year, Basketball Hall of Fame, uh, U.S. Basketball Writers Association. Three newspapers. You're you're a legend out there in the Pacific Northwest. Forty five years. You've seen a little bit of everything, and I've seen you in a panic with your car running and the keys inside. And uh, we always have that to share. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so unfortunately, time is running out on us now. But I do want to say thank you. I know when you announced your retirement, you sent a note to all the writers in the Football Writers Association that said, you know, keep in touch. Quote, I know where the good bars are. <laughs> That's right. So, I'm, I'm, en- I'm enjoying this one right now. Well, this has been a real treat to have you in our own bar. So, Bud, thanks a lot. It's been great reminiscing and catching up with you. Thank you, Todd. And uh, I'll get the next round, okay? Oh, no, I'll, I'll hold true to that. <laughs> wherever, wherever that might be. All right. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to PressBox Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando and our audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.